Welcome to Passion to Poison, the podcast that explores life's transitions. I'm Russ Tanner, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac Wilson. Today on the podcast, we have Will Schmidt. Will is a lifestyle ocean athlete. In 2014, he made a 1,386-mile unassisted stand-up paddle from Canada to Mexico. The legendary paddle has made him a pioneer in the world of endurance ocean sports. He's been featured in SUP Magazine and on CBS Sports, as well as numerous radio and live appearances. Will is a former United States Marine, a dedicated ambassador for SIC Maui SUP, a contributing writer for TheInertia.com, and a two-time solo participant in the Molokai to Oahu Paddleboard World Championships. He's also produced and starred in two documentary films recounting his own experiences on the water. Despite his success and extreme desire to challenge himself, Will has struggled with debilitating depression. We're excited to hear his story and learn how paddleboarding literally saved his life. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Uh, I've been wanting to get you on here for quite a while, actually, because I've been so impressed with your story. I actually met Will about uh, maybe five years ago, six years Something ago. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I I was in the market for a paddleboard, and I actually bought the paddleboard that he used to, I think you said, to break the record, the, the time or the speed record from Catalina Island to, I think it was Dana Point. Dana Point. Is it right? is still to this day the fastest 14-foot solo journey from uh, Avalon to Baby Beach and Dana Point Harbor, so, which is almost exactly a 40-mile trip. That's awesome. amazing. Yeah. And it's a great board. I still use it, and um, every time I'm on it, I'm like, this is a special board. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, we, we were just talking about it before we, we, we came live here, and uh, I said, that, that board is truly the one that got away. Like, I'd, I'd probably pay you twice as much as you paid me for it to have it back. <laughs> <laughs> they, just, they just don't build them like they used to. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one of my all-time favorites, yeah. All right, well, let's get into this. Um, let's start with your upbringing. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your family life, and you know, we'll get into you know, the crazy things that you've done on your board, but let's start at the beginning. Yeah, so I was actually uh, born in a bar. So my uh, parents, uh, sorry, my, my grandparents and my father owned uh, two bars and a restaurant. So when I was born, I was born into uh, the bar industry and when my uh, grandparents uh, decided they wanted to retire and, and sold everything, my my father uh, went to work for uh, some different restaurant chains, and so we we traveled all over the country. But uh, one thing about uh, my upbringing, I, mean, I, I had a, a great family, loving parents, you know, anything a, a kid could ever ask for. Uh, but we did relocate often, and uh, you know, I always talk about this how I uh, I never really had lifelong friends. Uh, there was one uh, stretch of time where I went to five different schools in five consecutive years. And so I, I was always just kind of starting over, starting over, you know, making friends, living in a new place. And uh, so I, I, I tend to keep, you know, close friends very close, but, you know, acquaintances with many people, but, uh, you know, a few close friends. That's, that's kind of how it's been my entire life. And uh, in uh, right before I turned 18, I joined the Marine Corps, and that's what brought me to California State. So at 18 years old, in fact, 18, 
between 18 and 18 and three months old, I graduated high school, uh, joined the military and left, came to California. And I've, I've been uh, on this coast ever since. So going on from, uh, from 1998 and, and just never looked back. So, so what attracted you to the military? I wish I was one of those kids that knew what they wanted to do when I grew up. I was always jealous of, of people that said, oh yeah, I, I want to be a doctor. I want to I be a lawyer. I want to do this and that. And I said, I, I have no clue what I want to do. <laughs> and I actually had uh, recruiters come to my house and my, uh, I, I remember this very distinctly, my, my, my mother's in tears, you know, and she, she's crying and why, why do you want to leave me? And my, my father's defending her. And he says, you know, son, don't you want to go to college? And I said, oh dad, you're going to help me pay for college. That's cool. And he says, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll miss you. And that was, that was about all, all the talk we had. And uh, I, I joined. I, I I came to California. It was it was my way of uh, taking some time to figure out what I wanted to do in my life and 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 be on my own and and uh, discover what I was into. And I think it was the best decision I made at that time. Like if I could go back and do it all again, I'd do it the exact same way. You know, all all my friends were going to college and you know, changing their majors every other year and spending all their parents' money, and I was out traveling the world and having the time of my life. And I, you know, those, uh, those friends that I made in the Marine Corps, I'm, I'm still close contact with every single one of them. So talk about, uh, you know, going from a, a life of no real camaraderie to all of a sudden having these lifelong friends. And I think, uh, that decision to join the military was exactly what I needed to kind of kickstart my life and where I wanted to go. Did you find it hard in the military to make friends like that, given just kind of the upbringing you were talking about as far as moving around all the time, like psychologically, was that an issue for you? I don't think so, because I think a lot of people in the military are in the same boat that I am. You know, we, we were all the, the, the loners, the ones that uh, needed to find a place in the world for ourselves. And so we did. And so people don't go in the military because they've got everything else set up for them everywhere else. They go in the military to, to figure things out, to find their self, to, to, to move on or, or to take care of things, whether it's their self or their family. But we, we were all, you know, just a, a big band of misfits. And I think any Marine you ever talk to will, will, will tell you the exact same thing. So I know in your life, uh, depression has been a companion. And I say it that way because, you know, I, pers I personally, I've struggled with depression myself for a long time. And it really is kind of like a companion. It's something that just kind of hangs around and flares up and can be awful one day. And then you don't think about it for a week and then it pops up again. And, um, when did that start for you? Was that before the military or? It definitely was. You know, I, I don't, I, I thought about it a lot. I don't really attribute, uh, those things to the military, but, uh, looking back on it, traveling around so much, always having to make new friends, always having to kind of prove myself. Uh, I've always just depended on myself and, um, it's made it very hard for me in my life or in the past to, uh, to ask for help or tell people how I felt or really open up. So that, that carried on into my, uh, into my adult life as well. I, I always used to say I, I was a, a very anxious person and I, I read a, a definition a while back. They, they, they talked about high functioning anxiety and people with high functioning anxiety are, uh, they, they get things done. They're very detail oriented which is all pluses, but then on the very negative side, it says that uh, people with high-functioning anxiety and high-functioning depression tend to take a lot more uh, tasks and jobs onto themselves because 
they don't know how to articulate to somebody else the help that they need. So they would rather just do it themselves or deal with it themselves than try to ask someone and have it done the wrong way or the way they don't want to do it and cause more stress. I think that that's really one of the, the key issues of depression as well is that you know, we, we always say, why didn't you ask for help? Why didn't you reach out to somebody? And you know, it's, it's not possible many times. You, know, you, you don't want someone else's help. You don't know how to ask for someone else's help. You don't want the uh, stigma or the, um, uh, that person judging you. So instead, a, a lot of those feelings are, are kept inside. And you know, all that does is, is just grow and grow. And so, um, you know, it, it's double-edged sword there. You know, you, you're, you're protecting yourself, but yet uh, you're not offering any sort of help to yourself as well. And so uh, I, I think uh, a lot of these things, me growing up really depending on myself, uh, moving around a lot. Uh, I mean, I, I joined the military uh, in a way just to get away from the life I was living as well. And I, I've, I've looked back on it and kind of felt like I was always running away from something, trying to find the next best thing or what was going to make me happy. So there was a lot of chasing my happiness or chasing my sanity in the past. And it, it is a constant uphill battle. And some days you catch it and some days it's, it's, it's running away from you. And you just have to keep, uh, keep maintaining yourself. But the fact that we're sitting here talking about it is a huge step in the evolution of, of this kind of... Uh, of, of, a, of a sickness. And I want to call it a, a sickness because it's, uh, it's something that can be handled with the right type of therapy. Where were, Will, where were some of the places that you really enjoyed visiting uh, or just some of the adventures that you had? Uh, it sounds like you met some great people, but what were some of the, uh, I, I guess in my mind, I think of military service as an adventure in a lot of ways. But tell us a little bit about what, what you learned uh, in your travels. Yeah, so I, um, I was stationed in a light armored vehicle uh, battalion. So I was a uh, LAV crewman, and I was actually in a test variant of the Marine Corps light armored vehicle that shot the Stinger missile. So I was cross-trained as a uh, surface-to-air missile gunner, a low-altitude air defense gunner, as well as a light armored vehicle crewman. So I was cross-trained on this uh, special variant of vehicle that actually doesn't even exist anymore. I was one of maybe 45 Marines or so that ever got to utilize it. And uh, you know, Marine Corps is a very small band of brothers. And we uh, do a lot more with a lot less. So at, uh, you know, even, even before I was able to, to go to a bar and buy a drink or light up a cigarette, I was uh, a vehicle commander and even a uh, platoon leader for up to 20 Marines and four vehicles worth about $5 million each. So and that, that, that's a lot to take on when you're, uh, when you're that age, that, that, that kind of, uh, uh, I guess, you're not really emotionally ready for it, but you do it anyway. You know, I, I look back at pictures of myself in the military, and I'm like, ah, we're just a bunch of kids playing with guns. That's really how, how it feels these days. <laughs> I do a, an update on my Facebook uh, once a year for Veterans Day, and I post a picture of myself then and a picture of myself now, and I do like this little comparison thing. And it, it's just so funny to see like my little baby face then and, and just how the years have, have, uh, have gone by. People always say, that, that's not you in that picture. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that, that's little baby Will holding, holding, his, holding his rifle. But uh, we, we got to uh, 
we got to travel and, and, and experiment with these vehicles and, and we worked with a lot of different units. So being a, a test variant of, of this vehicle, a lot of different military units wanted to train with us. So I did a lot of combined arms exercises in um, 29 Palms in the middle of the desert. I spent uh, six months in the Arctic Circle up north of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, doing cold weather training on the vehicles, you know, stuff like burying the missile in the, in the ice and snow and uh, digging it up the next morning and trying to shoot the things. And we, we got to travel all over the U.S. We got to take them on, on boats. We, we really got to, got to enjoy that. And uh, that, that was a neat experience just because being that test variant of the vehicle, everyone wanted to train with us, but also everyone was so excited to always be around us. Like we were kind of the stars of the show. Like we'd, we'd show up at, at, at different, uh, uh, different training sessions and people just like, here, take ammo. Go show us what this thing can do. So it was fun. We, we, we got, uh, I even got to do, uh, we call them dog and pony shows where you get to go and uh, kind of show off to the general public. And I even went and did, uh, I was in the Mardi Gras parade in San Diego, California back in like 1999. And they had four of our vehicles in the middle of this Mardi Gras parade with, you know, girls throwing beads at our faces and everything. And, you know, we, we had to do some, some really, some really neat things. How long were you in the military? So I did four years plus one. I spent four years in the military. I got out, uh, so I, I served during during 9-11. Uh, I got out in mm, August of 2002, and right about the time when uh, we started uh, going to war with Iraq and Iran, and uh, if you remember uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, I was involuntarily recalled. So I was going to school. I was uh, starting to live my life and uh, out of the military, and here eight months later, I get involuntarily recalled back to active duty service. So life turned upside down once again. Uh, I, I spent one year to the date. In fact, the day, uh, if you remember, shock and awe was the uh, the invasion of Fallujah and the, the, the three or four days we just uh, you know, constantly bombed that area. I was standing in line uh, getting re-immunized and checked back in to active duty service for a year. So, and at the time they were, they I think they recalled 3,800 Marines and the plan was to uh, disperse everyone back to their units that had recently been deployed, like my unit had. And then uh, last minute, it was decided, the congressional order came down, and they decided that instead of sending all of us over, they would have us occupy jobs on the local bases that uh, had been vacated by Marines who had, had just gotten sent over. So for a year, I did uh, gate guard duties and... Uh, uh, maintenance patrols and it's all sorts of different things on the base, but never actually got deployed at the time. But uh, that uh, that conflict, uh, all of my close military buddies uh, went and served overseas, which sort of leads up to uh, how I started getting into uh, uh, paddling for a purpose. So uh, one of my good friends that I uh, spent time with the military, ended up committing suicide. And this was uh, after he served two tours uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, his wife found him uh, in their shower. He had, he had hung himself. And it was like this, you know, it, it's the, the, the common story. It's always like the, the, the guy that was always happy and, and, and there for everybody and, and, and always the guy that's you know, got a good joke for you. And, and, you know, he was the guy that was hurting the most. And you look at that, it, it seems to be that kind of personality, uh, compensating with um, 
a, a, a glaring personality and uh, always be in the life of the party in order to hide something a little more sinister in, in, inside of you. And I, I saw that in myself. I was always the uh, uh, the, the joker and, and, and the fun guy and, and always just hiding this, uh, uh, this, this, these dark feelings that I didn't really talk to people about. So you get out of the military and... What happened next? Did you go to school after that? Or? So I did, yeah. I, I, I started going to school. Actually, I, I was uh, uh, talking about, I wanted to get into healthcare, and uh, I just didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I uh, I did some uh, working interviews. I, I went and worked for, for a podiatrist. I, I did some um, sterilization of the hospital, and I ended up going in and shadowing an oral surgeon one day, and I thought, wow, this is the neatest thing ever. It's, uh, you know, I, I can work in healthcare, but it's nothing that's, too big of an emergency. I'm not going to deal with with uh, you know, imminent uh, fear of like you know, patients dying or things like that. So it, it seemed like a good fit, and I thought at the beginning to uh, to become a dentist. And after going to school for a while, and uh, went on my involuntary recall, and then surprise, my son was born, and a lot of my life plans uh, changed. They they were altered a bit. Uh, my my son was born in in 2003. In fact, he turns uh, 19 this year, and I uh, at the time was going to a dental assisting program just to see if I was uh, if I would enjoy working in the industry. And uh, I've continued to work in dentistry uh, as a registered dental assistant and now an extended functions dental assistant, uh, maxillofacial surgical assistant. Uh, to my current position, I uh, manage a test facility at the world's largest uh, dental technology firm. So I think I'm the only person that uh, even went to my school that still even works in dentistry. But I've I've made the most of it over over all the years, and uh, I've uh, just really enjoyed that. But uh, you know, part of being someone that that deals with high functioning anxiety, uh, working in healthcare is is very different from working in a um, a large corporation where uh, you can constantly advance your career. Uh, I got to a point that uh, when you're a dental assistant or when you're a dentist or when you're a dental hygienist, that's basically that's it for you. You've 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 peaked. There's nowhere to go up and above this. There's there's no you know once you hit the top of your pay grade, you know you you've been doing this for 18, 20 years or so, and that that's kind of where you land. And so for me, it was another one of those things where I, I started to dig myself into a uh, uh, a depressed hole again. And I, I thought, is, is is this it for me? Is is this all I'm going to ever do? And uh, I had to find ways to work on myself and, and work on my own happiness and figure out what I wanted to do in order to um, maintain the joy in my life. And uh, which leads in, into paddling. You know, the, the ocean paddle sports uh, have, have had a lot to do with, uh, uh, with my recovery and my, my continued success in um, dealing with emotions and, and, and dealing with uh, life's up and downs. So did you get into paddling because of the depression that you had or, you know, did you, you know, being a Marine, I don't know if Marines paddle or whatever, but is that where you kind of fell in love with the water or how'd you get into paddling in the first place? Yeah. So uh, growing up, I mean, in, in the Midwest, uh, everyone, you know, we're always going to, to the lakes and, and rivers and things to, uh, to spend the summers. And so, you know, if you weren't on, on grandma's boat water skiing in the summer, like you weren't having any fun on vacation. So I've, I've always been a water guy, but, you know, always 
landlocked water skiing, wakeboarding, uh, kneeboarding, you know, all those, you know, swimming, all fishing with my father, all those things. And uh, my first uh, barracks roommate in the Marine Corps uh, was from Kauai. And he taught me how to surf. In fact, I always reminisce the first time I ever went uh, went to surf, I, I uh, ran face first into one of the pylons of the San Clemente Pier and uh, like slid down the thing, you know, so. <laughs> and uh, he he taught me how to surf. And, and from there, I, I was just, uh, you know, the, the ocean was just some very, something very different for me. Something with, with where current and um, current and, and just uh, wind and, and all these different uh, factors that I wasn't used to, you know, water skiing on lakes and things like that. And so I just really took to it and uh, started with surfing and I ended up uh, doing a lot of, uh, of open water kayaking and canoeing. And when stand-up paddle started becoming popular, I looked at this and I said, oh, what, what a neat thing to try. And I started at the time, this is back before a lot of people even knew what it was, uh, but they were taking these um, like windsurf boards and they were cutting the mast holes out of them and using those as stand-up paddle boards. And so my first board, I, I, uh, I, I rented once in Newport Harbor and then my, my first board, like I, I bought my first board the week after. You know, and it, it was it was an old like uh, uh, starboard uh, you know, sailboard, and you know the thing weighed like forty five pounds, eleven feet long, and I mean I just took that thing everywhere. I I, I beat the heck out of it, and I, I ended up uh, giving it to a friend of mine for their kid, and I think they still paddle it to this day, and that's that's been fifteen years ago, maybe even more. So I just I fell in love with it right away, and it was just something about being on the water in that capacity, and and not even just surfing or or anything else, but uh, that just gave me like like a different vantage point. It was, it was something so brand new. Uh, I always like to say in, in a world where everyone's done everything, I found something new and I jumped on it. It was just this exhilarating feeling. And it wasn't just uh, paddling around leisurely in the water. Like I would really go out and I would take out my aggression, my frustrations on the water. It was just th this way that I could kind of full on get this full body high, but very different from you know, going all out running or uh, you know going to the gym. It's just, I think the water added this this neat little element. I've thought about it a lot, and I think what's neat about the water for me is that the playing field's always changing. You know, no, no matter what you're doing, where you are, it's not the same as it was two seconds ago, nor will it be, you know, five seconds in the future. And so, it it's a way to keep your mind focused on what you need to do and away from things that are that are that are stealing your joy and 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 stealing stealing your thoughts and so i i don't think even slowly i i got into it i just i hurtled myself in, into this so i've got to share a quick story i was on your board that we talked about earlier and a friend of mine we were we were paddling from dana point to the san clemente pier and we, we were probably out maybe i don't know two or 300 yards, something like that. And I saw a big mass, this big black thing out in the water in front of me. And for some reason, I decided to paddle towards it. I don't know why. And so I get out there and it's way down there. And I'm sitting there and I'm calling my friend. I'm like, hey, come over here. And all of a sudden I see it kind of twitch. And I was like, that's not seaweed. Like, I didn't know what it was, but seaweed doesn't twitch. And... All of a sudden, this this shark just floats up to the top, and it was, I mean, the board is, well, it's 14 feet, I think, right? I think it's a 14-foot board. It was longer than my board and scared me to death. 
And I tell my friend, I'm pointing towards the shore, like, go, go, go. He has no idea why I'm freaking out. We both take off and we walk the rest of the way to the pier because we were too scared to back in, get get back in the water. But, you know, just that experience, uh, being out there in the water, I know what you're talking about. There's just something, it makes you feel alive, I guess. Like knowing there there are monsters under you and the currents are changing, it it really does kind of make you feel alive out there and it, it, all your senses are heightened. I mean, especially there, I didn't want to fall over. I didn't want to get bit by a shark or something. So I'm just laser focused on not falling over. So I get that. There's something appealing about being in the ocean like that. Oh, there is. It's something that's, that's so much bigger than you. And you're, you're not ever going to, uh, you're never going to win with the ocean. You're not ever going to control it or get one up on it. The best you can do is find some sort of harmony with it and and allow it to like work with it. I have a good friend of mine It's uh, that's been my chase boat for a couple of my adventures, and she likes to say the ocean is a formidable mistress. And no matter how much you say you love the ocean, you love to be there, it doesn't like you and it doesn't want you there. But something about it keeps drawing you back into it. You know, it, it's sort of like the, the, the dog that keeps getting pushed away. All it wants to do is come up and, and, and still get your love and, 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 and get, uh, uh, get pet. I think that's, that's the same thing with me in the ocean. No matter how much it doesn't want me there, I'm just going to go back out and, 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 uh, and try to challenge it. So that, that, that got me, I mean, that, that first board got me in love with, with paddling. And then, um, I've sort of upgraded ever since. And I, I started paddling back when, uh, I think it was twelve six was the longest board you could have out of a single blank at the time because that was the the biggest blank that a surfboard like a big wave surfboard was was ever made out of. So when they started making these fourteen foot boards or like the unlimited boards, the eighteen nineteen footers at the time, they would take a couple different blanks and uh, sandwich them together, and then that's how they'd make these bigger boards. Or they'd use like old boards, uh, like like uh, one of my first limited boards was a Joe Bark. Uh, it was an 18-footer by 25 inches wide, but it was still shaped sort of like a prone board. And uh, it had a centerline rudder system on it, this, this ball that went down the center. So uh, you'd have to, to stand staggered on it. it. had a pin tail, pin nose, and you'd have to use your heels back and forth on a little piece of foam to turn the rudder. And those things were so unstable. And that's what I learned how to paddle open water on. I would, I would do races and things and people look at me like, you're going to stand up on that thing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> you know, not realizing that there's so many different uh, ways to design a transom on a big board and things. And so I, I had a lot to do, I think, instrumentally with uh, design of some of the, uh, the, the early boards. So putting bigger transoms on it when, when everyone was thinking, go smaller, go smaller, go lighter. I'm like, why don't we go wider? Why don't we go a little heavier, less quirky? more transom in the back. Let me, you know, be able to put my weight in the rails and not flip this thing over. But at the same time, I want to be able to, instead of thinking about worrying about standing upright on this thing and, and balancing, I want to be able just to put my power into my stroke and, and, uh, put my speed into that. I think we found over time that, uh, uh, that was actually the way to go. Instead of people going shorter and shorter and 14 foot boards with, uh, you know, that weighed 15 pounds that were just launching people out of the water. Instead, we were going just a little bit heavier where these boards could track. And just like that 14-foot bullet that you ride, that thing's kind of the, the epitome of, of, uh, of the design. It's got a, tran- a nice transom on it, but still a little bit of a pintail, sharp rails, wide on, the, uh, uh, wide on the rails. And that thing's just a beast in big water. 
So I've, I've always said I'm, I am not a fair weather paddler. I'm a fair weather surfer and I am a, an inclement weather paddler. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I love getting thrown around. I, I love that, that, that big water. I love just the intensity of it, the, the downwinds. Like that's, that's my, that's my place. What's the, uh, what's the biggest seas that you've ever, uh, you've ever paddled in? So I, you know, we, we mentioned earlier the, the Molokai to Oahu and that, uh, the, the Ka'ivi channel is like something else you've, you've never seen. And, and until you actually go and you sit out there in that water, it's, it's, they, they talk about mana, you know, the, the, the mystery, the, uh, uh, uh the spirituality out in that channel. The, the Molokai channel, the, the Ka'ibi channel is the third, I think it's the third deepest oceanic trench known to man. And coming off of the island of Molokai, it drops significantly to a few thousand feet very quickly. And then you get the trade winds that move through that channel all the way through to Oahu. And uh, they, they pick about uh, oh, 180 paddlers or so every year to do the event. They haven't uh, for the last couple of years because of, of, of COVID restrictions, but I was able to do the 20th and the 21st anniversary of this race. And it's just, it's, it's such an interesting event to get, there's so much logistics involved to get yourself, your board and your paddle and everything to Molokai and to the start line. And after that entire episode, you're like, well, crap, I still have to paddle this stupid thing. And, you know, you, you've, you've got a chase boat that you've hired for a couple thousand dollars. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, my first year was a Molokai shoreman who's lived on the island of Molokai and fished on his waters his entire life. And uh, he, he was really, really cool guy. Uh, but you, you get out there in, in this water and it's just, you know, they, they call them doldrums. It's these, these really, really big waves. I'm talking like 30 feet at like 15, 20, even 25 seconds. So it's really long, like you're, you're up and down 25, 30 feet, but it's taken a long time, you know, 10, 15, 25 seconds or so. And when the wind starts picking up, you get those wind waves on top of that thing. I mean, it, it just, you look around, you're like, is this, is this normal? Is, is this what this is supposed to look like? And I'm having this like uh, come to grips moment out in the channel. I'm like, I, they're going to call the race off. Like, this is way too much. I turn around, I look at my boat captain and he's laid back in his chair with his feet up on the steering wheel, falling asleep. And he, he, he sits up and looks at me and he, he, he points, you know, towards the wall and he says, that way, brother, you're doing good. And he like kind of lays back down. I'm like, oh no, no, this is this is normal. Like it's just such a crazy perspective that he's so used to it in his entire life. And I, I'm over here having having a panic attack. <laughs> this was not like, you know, at the most my my longest paddle or anything like that. But yeah, seeing seeing the water in the Kaivi channel is is just something else. And uh, uh, I'm not a religious person by any means, but uh, you find something to believe in out there really quick. And that I, I recommend if, if any paddler is, is interested in ever just like really, really challenging themselves and having a once in a lifetime experience, you know, sign up and, and, and go do the Molokai to Oahu. That, that event will change your life. So that's, is that where they do the Iron Man? Um, I, I don't know. Or is that a different channel? Not sure. Cause they, they do the Maui to Molokai, which is a, a, a shorter race, but it's more coastal. I'm not sure about the Iron Man. Maybe that's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah, Actually, I, I've I've heard things about that Molokai Channel, and it's just crazy out there. Yeah, just... yeah. So an interesting story. When I started working uh, years ago at the the technology firm that I'm at now, uh, we have a, a a company gym, and I was talking to the gym attendant there, and she's from Hawaii, and I was telling her that I was going to go do 
the, the, the Molokai and things. She says, oh, yeah, I swam that. So wait, excuse me? She says, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I swam that. Turns out she is the youngest person, male or female, to have ever solo swum the Molokai Channel. Her name is wow. McK- Mackenzie Miller, 19 years old. She and, and she's done tons of things, English Channel, all this different stuff in, in the past. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm bragging to, to my gym attendant, this, this, this cute little girl there at the gym that I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to go paddle them all. I said, yeah, yeah, I swam that. Yeah. Yeah. It's verifiable. Yeah. She was awesome. So, so she gave me a lot of pointers and things for, for the channel, but yeah, she uh, did that thing in like 16 hours or, or, or something like that. Like some, some ridiculous time. What was her name? Mackenzie Miller. Mackenzie Miller. Mackenzie Miller. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she she's done a lot of uh, big fan. In fact, she just uh, a few years ago paddled or sorry, swam the Catalina Channel from I think two harbors over to uh, Palos Verdes Peninsula. It's like the 19 mile stretch. We need to get her on here. I think to we should talk to her yeah. also. Yeah, we and she and I had actually <laughs> talked. To, you know, I, I I've done. Uh, you know, we, we were talking uh, briefly in your in your intro about uh, like my Canada Mexico paddle and things, but I've done other paddles. You know, through the Channel Islands and and uh, you know different channel crossings and. We had talked for a while about collaborating. I was actually going to revisit doing some channel crossings and then uh, chase her uh, as her paddler in the water across for her her swim. And we ended up, you know, life happens. I got busy. She had other things to do. And we ended up not collaborating on the thing, but she went ahead and, and successfully swam that channel, I think, back in 2018. So tell us tell us about this crazy paddle that you did. Uh, 1,386 miles from Canada to Mexico. Yeah. So I'll, uh, uh I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go backwards. And when, when I, I talked about, uh, uh, just what led up to this, when I talked about my, uh, Marine Corps friend that, uh, that committed suicide. And this was after, uh, a time in my life where I too had a, um, I don't want to call it a suicide attempt. But an attempt of, a, of an attempt, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I got to a point, this is 2009, where I, I just uh, was at an all-time low. And I, I, I didn't see any, anything on the horizon for me anymore. And uh, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, is, is this all life has to offer? Because if so, I don't want any part of it. And uh, you know, living in California and you know, miles... In, thousands of miles away from, from my family or any, any kind of like real lifelong support group. Uh, it came to a time where I, uh, I called in sick to work. I, I locked myself in, um, uh, uh, in my room. And, uh, my goal was to, uh, take a bottle of pills and have a few drinks and just kind of never, never leave the room. And I, uh, it was a Monday morning, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and my, my mother gives me a phone call. And she knows, you know, on Mondays at 10 o'clock, I'm, I'm at the office. And she says, I just wanted to call and leave you a message because I hadn't talked to you in a while. And she says, I was surprised when you picked up. She says, but I, I also knew that something was wrong. Like she, she could tell, she could hear it in my voice. And, and, and she says, I'm afraid that if you don't go and do something, leave that room, uh, I'm, I'm going to, next time I see you is going to be when I, when, when I bury you. And so she she begged me to to leave the room that day, and and uh, you know, she says, "Go paddle, go surf, go do something." And I promised her I would. So that day I I did exactly that. I I, I got on a board, paddled off a couple miles out of Dana Point. If you know the uh, 
the flag buoy outside of Dana Point, the the, the two mile the two mile buoy, and I I wrapped my my leash around the buoy, and I just sat there. And I said, you know, something's got to change in my life. I'm either going to figure this out, or I don't know how much longer I'm going to live. And it was on that day, I, I, I say on, on, on a stick of foam, two miles offshore with nobody around me that I, I, I found my vindication. I decided that there was something to live for and I was going to figure it out. And maybe it was the endorphin rush from going out and, and, and doing a paddle or something. But that kind of got me thinking, uh, you know, this was something I could do to settle my mind because it worked so well from that morning until me getting out on the water. So... That's what really threw me into paddling. Uh, after the experience with my friend that committed suicide, I thought to myself, well, maybe there's something I can do to help my friend's family through paddling, which is something that I believe saved me. So I planned my first Catalina Channel Crossing. At the time, it was a, from Avalon on Catalina Island to, to Dana Point Harbor, which I said is about a 40-mile, almost exactly a 40-mile trip. And my goal was to raise funds uh, for my friend's family to help them with expenses and things after uh, after his suicide. And this is at a time also where, you know, the, the longest pe people would say, oh, you did a paddle workout of six miles, like San Clemente Pier or something like that. Like, that's crazy talk. Like, no one ever heard of such a thing, paddling 40 miles. It was like the big premier thing at, at the time. And I'm really good at marketing myself. So we we, we, we planned this paddle 40 miles from, um, from Avalon to, to, to Dana Point. And uh, I mean, we, this was before we had like, uh, you know, Facebook live or anything. So like I had a friend on my chase boat sending text messages to like a hundred different people at like group messages, you know, Will's at this point, Will's doing this, the water's looking like this. And, uh, we, we just hammed it up and I was amazed at the response I got from it. I mean, we, we raised about $6,000 that we were able to, uh, it was back when GoFundMe was, was in its, its infancy as well. That was probably one of the first GoFundMe fundraisers at the time. But we raised about six grand to help uh, uh, my, my friend's family out and, and, and his wife and his daughters. And uh, I got started getting emails from people and I started getting asks from OC Register and you know, the Log Magazine and just uh, OC Metro. And a lot of people wanted to pick up the story. But the big question that everyone had was, well, what's next? And I'm like, hmm. Because I, all I really planned on was, was doing a, a, a one-day event. So I said, well, well, what is next? What else could I do? So I linked up with a couple friends of mine who own a, a, a sailboat. And I said, you know, what would be really cool? I'd seen just a couple years before that. I'm trying to remember the, the, the girl's name. She paddled. Um, it was between my, my paddle and, and, and the next one. But she paddled uh, all the channels in the Channel Islands. Well, I can't remember her name right now. It, it, it's I'm, I'm spaced on it. But she ended up doing... Um, 150 miles through the Channel Islands, just paddling downwinders. And uh, I said to my friends that that own that boat, I, I said, I'm interested in doing some kind of a trip through the Channel Islands, sort of like this woman did, but I want to do it differently. Instead of motoring and paddling from channel to channel, I want to start on land, paddle through and touch all the Channel Islands, and end up back on on mainland California. So my goal was to paddle from mainland California touch each of the Channel Islands, and then back to shore consecutively over a period of you know, eight to 10 days or so. We started in uh, Channel Islands Harbor in Oxnard, ended up paddling through Anacapa Island, Santa Cruz Island, and then up to uh, Santa Rosa Island, where we got caught in the channel and blown all the way back to, uh, to Santa Cruz, where I ended up uh, 
deciding that it was a little too dangerous and we were a little unprepared for what I was trying to attempt and the route I was trying to attempt, being a, a young Cavalier paddler. So uh, we ended up altering the route through the inner five channel islands. So it is still to this day the first and only shore to shore paddle through the uh, inner cha California channel islands from from Oxnard to uh, Anacapa Island, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara Island, uh, Cat Harbor on the uh, west end of Catalina Island, over to San Clemente Island, northwest Anchorage, and then back to Avalon and then Dana Point. So did it in uh, it was 325 miles in, I think, uh, seven consecutive days. Wow, and that's we, crazy. Wow. Yeah, we, we did it for uh, Wounded Warrior Project. So you know, at, at that time, now I had a purpose for what I was doing. And and so I said, well, if, if I can, if I can do this, uh, this kind of paddling for one person and get such a response, let's see where else I can take it. So we ended up doing uh, uh, half of the half the proceeds from that paddle went to Wounded Warrior Project, and the other half went to a charity of my boat captain's choosing. Uh, they uh, they chose a uh, orphanage in Baja, Mexico, that they they travel too often to help buy uh, diapers and food and clothing and things for for the orphans there. So we we kind of split that trip up, and we made a like a cheesy little you know forty five minute documentary film of, of about it, and we we premiered it. Actually, we we did a dual fundraiser. We we premiered it uh, at a restaurant in Dana Point, and we did a big fundraiser and like a game night and stuff there. Ended up donating those proceeds to a friend of ours whose daughter had uh, leukemia, and so um, it just just it was really neat how as paddling became more popular i got into this little niche that no one had ever thought about doing like a lot of people thought you know paddling at first then paddling at first was just tooling around a harbor and enjoying nature and things and here i am out here doing channel crossings there's very few of us out here doing uh uh you know, channel crossings and, and open water paddling and you know we we kind of like pioneered this thing and so the, the, the more it grew, the more we were like, okay, if we can do 40 miles, why can't we do 150? If we can do 150, why can't we do 325? And then you know, to lead to your question five minutes ago, how did I get to do this uh, crazy coastal paddle? Well, uh, me and some paddling friends were talking one day and we we're like, you know what, what, what would be even crazier to do than, you know, than the Channel Islands or something like that? And I'd said, you know, what would be really cool is, is to do like a really neat, long expedition like a coastal paddle like uh you know east coast north to south or uh pacific coast like canada to mexico type thing and we're like yeah that just sounds kind of intense but yeah maybe someone could do it right so uh you ever played the game telephone where someone says one thing and it gets passed around until it's a completely different uh a, a completely different thing at the very end well that's what happened about a week later i'm uh i'm out surfing and a friend of mine's on the beach and he says hey dude i heard you're uh planning a, a, a trip down the coast. So wait, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I heard from so-and-so who told so-and-so this and that. I'm like, oh, well, okay. I'm like, well, I guess I'm obligated. I can't back out now. <laughs> so uh, his, his, his response was, well, don't do that. I said, why not? He says, well, it's impossible. And, you know, that, those are like the, the key things that you can't say to me is, well, you can't do that because I'm going to try to figure out a way, <laughs> a way to prove you're wrong. So I really started thinking about it. I'm like, well, what would it take to paddle from the Canadian border down the Pacific coast to the Mexican border? Uh, in between that time, there was a guy named Tom Jones who did a paddle down the California coast. And he did it completely assisted by the water. 
Uh, so I think it was like 800 miles, something like that, which at the time then was like the biggest paddle after my 325-mile Channel Islands paddle. And uh, he did it completely assisted by another boat, and then he had like a, uh, jet skis that took him out to the water every day and took him back in and everything. And he ended up doing this in the, over a period of, uh, I don't know, a month and a half or, or something like that. And he did it on, on like a 14-foot, uh, like a wide-body stand-up surfboard which is just even amazing in itself. And Tom Jones does a lot of endurance paddling and things and uh, endurance sports in, in, in general. So he and I talked and I got some advice and things from him. And I talked to another woman who had done some outrigger paddling. Uh, her name is Margo Pellegrino. She's from uh, the East Coast. And she's done a lot of uh, uh, West Coast and uh, coastal long distance outrigger paddling. So I talked to her and, and uh, about 10 months of planning and things. And then I ended up... Uh, embarking on this trip in 2014. So two days before my birthday, before my 34th birthday in 2014, I paddled from uh, Nea Bay, Washington, uh, out to Swiftsure Bank, which is the exact north-south water border of Canada and USA and the east-west border of the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Pacific Ocean. Turned around, from, which is about 12 miles offshore, so going upwind in the middle of uh, uh, where a... a straight and a and an ocean converge which is uh some intense water it's just just a huge whirlpool for 12 miles and uh it feels like you're, you're on analog brakes with a rudder in the water because it's just like knocking the rudder the entire time pedaled out to swiftshire bank came back into shore to macaw bay which is on the other side of uh Nea bay you've been in the very northwest corner of washington state they call it the end of the world that's uh, basically the most northwestern point of the continental u.s and then picked my way down the coast for 58 days. So my, my goal on that trip was 30 miles a day. My, I ended up doing 20, the average was 24 and a half miles a day. My longest day was 42 miles. My shortest day was six. It was kind of all dependent on uh, weather and water and places to stay. So I'd, I'd planned out uh, every little detail of that trip. So uh, from, from the, the gear that I would camp with, the food I ate, to how I would, uh, you know, over 300 different points where I could possibly come into shore every night and find a place to stay. One thing I knew about doing a trip like that is that I couldn't do it assisted by the water. Just having a boat there the whole time for two months would cost way too much in, in fuel and logistics. And there are many places where there's not even a place to anchor a boat that would be safe for that matter. So I decided to do it even more bold completely unassisted by the water. So I, um, I sent care packages of food up the coast to people that I knew or people that who had volunteered to, to take care of me. So at a moment's notice, if I needed a refill of food or supplies or things, they could come out within a day and take care of me. Of course, once you uh, step in the water on a big trip like that, you think you have everything planned, you know, the, the ocean has other plans for you. And so all Previous plans, the day I stepped on the water, just went out the window and kind of you know, made it up as I, as I went along. So uh, 58 days on the water, 58 consecutive days on the water, um, I made it to the Mexican border fence uh, in Imperial Beach, uh, San Diego, California. Uh, surfed in to the shore about 100 yards uh, before the border fence that separates Tijuana and, and, and San Diego. And I was met there by a, a border patrolman who we, we'd actually called in advance and gotten permission to be able to be escorted up to the, the border fence. And 
I surf in and he, he's standing there on, on the beach. He says to me, are, are you so glad to be done? And I looked down at this, uh, at this border fence, hundred yards down. I said, I don't think I'm done yet. And one of the iconic photos of, of that trip is, uh, me running down the beach with the board and all my gear, you know, we're talking the 16 foot, uh, 38 pound standup paddleboard on my head with all my gear running down the beach to go and touch the border fence, which is something that they don't let, you know, civilians do, you know, that you, you're rolling that allowed within a hundred yards or so of, of that fence. So I was escorted there by a, a, a Borderfield State Parks patrolman who let me touch the fence and set the board up there and take photos and, and things while on the other side of the fence in, in, in Mexico, Tijuana, it's a, it's a beach resort. People are out there drinking margaritas out of plastic cups and like waving at me over the fence. And so we, we ended up making a, an hour long documentary of that trip. You know, I had over 60 hours of, of footage. I filmed everything with GoPros attached to my body or, you know, people who I'd met or who had, who'd filmed me along that trip and uh, compiled all this footage into about an hour or so. And that hour still doesn't do justice to all the things I saw and did and, and, and endured. But I'm going to say that, that was, that was one heck of a ride. Yeah, that's incredible. Like I can't even imagine going that far. I think the farthest I've paddled is maybe 10 miles or something, but yeah, going that far. And it's not just the distance, it's the water that you're in. I mean, you start getting farther north in California and Oregon, Washington. I mean, things, it's a lot colder. Weather's a little crazier. How did you stand up for that long? That's something I've always wondered ever since I first heard that without your feet going completely numb. And because that's happened to me and just the short paddles I've oh, done. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I've, uh, I've developed different ways to paddle, different stances, different uh, paddle strokes to help my body recover itself. And so, I mean, that's one of the secrets to, to doing uh, endurance paddling is one thing you can't do is just set your feet and leave them there. You got to be able to walk around on the board and move around and really rest your feet. And also, instead of just doing one repetitive paddle stroke, and we, we estimated if I took one paddle stroke a second over eight to 10 hours a day, but I did about 1.25 million paddle strokes in that two months. And so if, if you're doing that same repetitive thing day after day after day, it's really going to wear on your body. So I, I developed and practiced ways to, um, to take different strokes. I brought different paddles along that were all lashed to the board of different lengths and different blade sizes. And it actually, it, it makes a big difference if you, if you take a 71-inch uh, paddle and the next thing you, you graduate to a 68 inch paddle and it's a, it's a whole different muscle group, even though it's the same repetitive motion. So a lot of these little tricks and things that I, that I, I developed, but there was also a lot of just beating the heck out of myself until I was so numb to any sort of pain that I would just push through it. And it wasn't just like trying to stand up and, and, and paddle. I'll, I'll tell you my, my first three days of this trip were like this. Uh, I exit the harbor at Nia Bay and I'm instantly in a sea of jellyfish and it was like alphabet soup of jellyfish tentacles coming up on the board and everything and I'm wearing these big expensive dive boots that I bought and you know it's just I'm like I'm gonna get stung and just like take it out on my very first day uh, I got wrapped up in a halibut fisherman's uh, line at one point had to cut it off of the guy's boat he was pissed off at me this is all within the first like three hours Finally found a place to stay that night uh, near Macaw Bay, you know, 12 hours later, 
left all my stuff out on the board to dry that night, woke up in the morning and it had rained the entire night. So everything I owned in the world was soaking wet. I mean, my tent, my sleeping bag, everything that was supposed to stay dry and all these nice dry bags, everything was just soaking wet. Third night, I get pulled through a tidal bore, wrapped around my board with my leash. Uh, my dive boots pulled off of my feet, raked across a razor clam reef, ended up cracking a rib, breaking two toes, slicing the tops of my feet up, and then got stuck with my board hanging from a tree and me up in a tidal zone uh, for the next 12 hours or so until the tide was low enough I could get back on the board and get it back out through the reef. You know, and having just extreme pain from this cracked rib, so I took a uh, ratchet strap, wrapped it around my chest, and pulled it tight until I popped my rib back into place. That's day three, by the way. So... <laughs> So paddling at that point was was uh, was a byproduct of just staying alive. Well, I'm assuming your your military training probably helped you through at least some of this. Like you probably had to do some crazy things in the military, also. Yeah, you know, we we have a saying in in the Marine Corps, and, and any Marine will will, will tell you this. Uh, you, you're in pain, or you're tired, or you're 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 hungry, you're angry, and they say to you, you know, this is what you asked for. And so that's one of the things I kept saying in my head of like, you know, this is exactly what you put yourself into. This is exactly what you wanted. Well, here it is. So I've, uh, I've always said that every day I, I had this, this thought, you know, this is the greatest idea I've ever had. And then every day, it could have been five minutes later, I would say to myself, what the hell are you thinking? And so it, it, it was that kind of like, uh, you know, angel and devil on, on each shoulder that, that, uh, yeah, was conflicting through this entire trip. And it's as I look back on it, it, it's hysterical. But yeah, you have to keep yourself motivated and you have to find a little bit of humor in it too. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm my own biggest critic. So I'm, I'm the guy who will, you know, I, I invented ways to, to fall off that board or fly off that board on that trip. And, you know, I'd, I'd uh, always get up and be like, well, you know, you're not going to do that again, are you, retard? You know, something like that. So you, you, have, to, you have to find a little bit of comedy in it. In, in the painful times, and, you know, I, I think that's also... We, we get back to talking about uh, depression and anxiety. I, I think uh, uh, finding comedy in darker situations is a great way to, um, to deal with internal conflicts. So I, I, I think, uh, and maybe it's not just paddling. I've never really thought about it like this. Maybe it's not just the act of paddling, but it's the way that I deal with the stresses of these types of adventures that has helped me cope with other stresses in my life. You know, that's actually the epiphany I had just right now. After doing interviews for years and years, thinking about like, what is it about paddling? I think one of the, one of the big things is that it helps me bring out conflicts and learn how, learn how to deal with them in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed that in my own life, if there's certain, if there's something I can really dig myself into like a, a project or something like that, that has challenges if I can overcome that, that tends to bleed into other areas of my life. So maybe that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's kind of what you're saying. Um, but it just made me think of that. Like you're, you're tackling this crazy, just huge challenge in front of you. And that's giving you confidence to, you know, keep going outside the water. Oh yeah. And you know, I've, uh, I've always said to my, my, my mother, 
always says to me, she, she says, you know, I, I want to, I want to get in better shape. I want to go to a gym and like join a class. And I'll, I'll say to her, you don't have to go to a gym and join a class or something to get in shape, mom. And she says, yeah, but, but I need people to hold me accountable. And I, I, I thought about that. I'm like, you know what? The ocean holds you accountable. If you go for a run, you get tired, you just stop and walk and you turn around and go back home. If you're at the gym and it's too heavy a weight, you put it down. If you're two miles offshore in the ocean, you can't just stop. You got to go back. Like the ocean keeps you accountable when maybe you aren't enough to keep yourself accountable. And that's just another element in it. When it's when you think it's time to give up on any other point in your life, uh, being on the water, uh, being in the ocean, whether it's paddling or, or, or sailing or something, anything like that, the ocean's going to hold you accountable no matter what. You, you have to pay attention. You know, in any part of the ocean, you know, don't, don't turn your back on the ocean when you're, when you're in, in the surf line. It, it, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's always, it's always doing something. And so being two, three miles offshore on a little stick of foam, you know, you, you're, you're accountable. You have to, you have to get back. You can't just, you can't just give it up and, you know, go home and have a beer. <laughs> you have to finish. So in my, my, my paddling, you know, I've, I've, I've evolved, uh, from stand-up, I, I do a lot of prone paddling as well, but my, my love for the last few years has actually uh, even been outrigger canoe. And I, I've, I've, I've really picked up, uh, I have a lot of outrigger canoe friends, and they're like, well, if, if you like stand-up, you love outrigger. And I've thrown myself into, into the outrigger canoe life as well. So that, that's, been, that's been a lot of fun. And I, I've, I've done some, uh, some co-ed channel crossings and you know, uh, uh, relay races and, and, and things in the outrigger, and uh, it's in the outrigger community that I really found, well, I actually say a, a community, uh, people that paddle, people that paddle are, are, are different kinds of people. You know, surfers are, are a great tight knit group, but, uh, you know, paddlers, we're, we're, we're something else. And, and outrigger paddlers, like we are just hardcore, you know, we're always people, people that are outrigger paddle, we just get each other, great friends, good companions, you know, people that are always there for you. And so I, I think along with um, uh, the other benefits that I found from all types of ocean paddling, what I've also found is a community and camaraderie, which are things that I uh, pined for in my past, as I, as I had mentioned before. And a lot of those things that, that added up and I, I think brought me to some of my darkest points in my life, uh, paddling has inadvertently given back to me. Or given me for the first time, and so when 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 I talk about uh, you know finding something that uh, that helps you through dark times, I don't mean that everyone should get up and, and go and, and and paddle or learn how to surf because I don't know if that's going to be what's for everybody. But I think everyone needs to find something uh, that brings you joy in your life and that brings you through the hard times, and whether that's biking or walking or uh, I have a friend who got into uh, drumming lately like like tribal drumming and that's helped her through a divorce and so i i think by by finding something that um that completes your life or or makes it worthwhile is what's going to get you through harder times and uh i really just i i throw myself into that and i i think that's made that's made all the difference well, hearing your uh, hearing your story reminds me of the the book uh, "The Boys in the Boat." I don't know if you've read it, but it's uh, it, it, 
It's about uh, crew teams back in the 1930s up in the uh, up in the Seattle area. Anyway, it's the book was all about suffering, you know, and it just sounds like hearing your experience. There has to be this ability to just suffer. So I played volleyball growing up. Russ played volleyball. That was our connection. And it was just fun. And it was, you know, you play for four or five hours. There's no danger. But hearing this, like, it just seems like there's got to be a correlation between physical suffering and mental health. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm making a leap there, but it just sound, it just seems like there's a there's a connection there. Have, have you found that to be true for yourself that you push yourself and you know you find some kind of Zen? I, I really think so. You know, I've uh, I had a, a, a friend uh, I haven't talked to for many years, but she confided to me once that um, a way she coped with. Uh, depression, anxiety, and, and, um, uh, pain from her past is she was a cutter and she would, you know, she was involved in, in the past self mutilation and, and, and in order to relieve stress and, and, and get herself through. And I, I said, what exactly does that do for you? Like, what did that do for you? She said, it made me feel alive. It, it gave me something to feel other than the pain I was feeling before. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a very extreme way to, to, to self-soothe. But I, I thought about uh, the way I cope, and it's, it's similar. It's, I, I've always said, you know, paddling and, and, and throwing myself in, in, into these, uh, you know, I don't want to say dangerous situations, but, but these extreme situations makes me feel alive. It, it, it hurts, but it hurts good. And it's, it's stressful, but it's also stress-relieving. And so I, I can see how uh, going to an extreme, when, when you feel like you're, you're at an end, going to an extreme and making yourself feel so much more alive on another end, I think balances things out. I, I, but I, I do know my limits as well. Uh, and I've, I've, I, I know I'm not immortal. And, uh, I, and the, there's a certain point where there is too much. And so you have, I think you have to also find that balance between um, doing what you love and, and, and going a little hardcore, at least for me, uh, but also keeping your feet on the ground. One thing I did experience that I, I wasn't, uh, never thought about was after doing these, um, these big trips, I would actually have a bit of a depressed lull afterwards. And it was a lot of, okay, there was so much buildup and so much time and effort put into this. And I had this purpose. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, there's nothing on the horizon again. Like what's next? I've heard about this from um, like former professional surfers uh, where all of a sudden, you know, over the years, they're not uh, viable competitors anymore. And then they're like, well, what's the point now? And I, I, I read that was a little bit of like the Andy Irons uh, complex too is like the, the more and more he wasn't like the top of his game anymore the more and more he turned into other things to help him cope and so there's a there needs to be a good balance between doing these things and going to the extreme for me uh, but also I can speak for other people but for me going to the extreme and, and, and doing these things but also making sure that I don't have this really low point afterwards in fact when, when I finished that uh, that coastal paddle out after two months 
uh, I've been asked so often, well, what did you do afterwards? I'm like, I went and paddled. I actually stayed at my girlfriend at the time at her house for, for uh, a couple weeks because we hadn't seen each other, but maybe a, a couple days through, through that trip. And uh, we went and paddled. Like I, I almost had to like wean myself off of it. You know, I, I'd, I'd been doing this, this thing for a purpose for so long and, and my mind was now just racing, what's next, what's next? And the answer, there wasn't an answer for it. I was kind of always looking for the next best thing as well. Which I think is what led me from a 40-mile paddle to a 300-mile paddle to a 1,300-mile paddle. And there's always going to be that, well, what's next? What's on the horizon? And uh, I've, I've, I've learned that it doesn't necessarily have to be something that's bigger and better you know, or, or longer or, or more intense, but just always having something to look forward to um, has, has helped me maintain myself. You know, and, and you, you're never going to be cured from there's no cure from depression from anxiety from um uh your your mental acuity but it takes a lot of maintenance you know our our entire life is is, is all about maintenance from you know cutting our hair to uh uh our our careers to, to our, our mental state and i'm i'm happy to say when, when people say to me well you've got a great like work and and hobby life mix i said like, what do you mean like my career and, and, and paddling and, and everything, this is my lifestyle. And it's, I think it's a lot also about how you, how you present the things you do and the life you have to yourself. Semantics are a, are a big thing. So people say, oh, you've got great hobbies. You, know, how, you, 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 you work hard, but you also have a lot of good hobbies. I'm like, no, 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 I, I don't want to think about it like that. I have a great lifestyle. I have this, I have this great mix where I can be professional and uh, uh, work in a, in a medical environment, but also uh, at the end of the day, I can also find myself two miles offshore for, for a sunset. And so I, I, I like this mix I have, but I don't ever want to separate the two, thinking I've got these two lives, like, okay, I've got to go to work now, but you know, now I can go have fun. And you know, the more you can make everything in your life uh, interesting or joyful, I think the better off you're going to be in the long run. Awesome. That's cool. So what is next for you? Like a paddle around the world or? Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of paddlers lately that, that have been doing that. You know, the, the Pacific Coast crossing or Pacific uh, uh, Ocean crossings and Atlantic crossings and things. And it's really neat to see what, uh, what the evolution of paddling has been. For me, uh, my next step is something uh, that's been bugging me for a long time. I told you about my Channel Islands paddle where we originally had thought about doing all eight islands from shore to shore. And uh, I, I said to someone once, I, I said, I wish I had just done that and made it happen the first time so I didn't have to think about it for the next like, 10, 12 years or so. Because that's always still been on in the, in the back of my head, is actually completing a shore to shore California Channel Islands paddle, uh, touching ground on all eight islands. Uh, so last year, a paddler, Jamie Mitchell. He, he's a, a, a pretty famous uh, prone paddler. He's won the Molokai Oahu 10 times over. He did a Channel Islands paddle on a, on a prone board where he did uh, similar to what uh, Karen Wren was the girl's name, the woman that, that did the 150-mile paddle. This came to me. He did a paddle similar to what she did where he touched all eight islands, but he did them all as downwinders uh, channel to channel and landed eventually on, uh, on Catalina. And so we've all had these these 
amalgamations of doing a, a, a trip like that, but I still, I think this is what's going to be the next big thing eventually uh, that I've been trying to get off the ground for years is uh, the first ever uh, consecutive paddle of the Channel Islands from mainland California, touching all eight islands and back to mainland California. So it's, it's just a, uh, in addition to what other people have done through the Channel Islands. And I think we've all kind of fed off, off of each other. You know, I, I got my, uh, I got my motivation from from Karen Wren's paddle, and then um, you know Jamie Mitchell did his paddle, and then I've wanted to revisit it. So I I, I think the eventual paddle, and, and it's it's evolved over the years in my head as well. You know, I eventually wanted to do the whole thing as a stand up paddle adventure, and then uh, and I started getting into outrigger. I thought, well, maybe I could do longer channels on the outrigger and shorter channels on the stand up, and then you know being so so much into outrigger the past couple of years, I thought, well, maybe I can just make it an entire outrigger canoe adventure as well and i've even talked to a marine biologist who uh has has done studies with scripps university who wants to actually uh film the paddle and we can use it as a way to talk about uh indigenous cultures that used to live in the channel islands so we, we've had so many different like variations of, of what we want to do for a trip but uh the, the next thing you'll see out of me will, will be an eventual revisit to the channel islands that's awesome. We're looking forward to seeing then how that turns out. So am I. <laughs> what What's the time frame on that? Oh, oh man, months, so, years. Well, so um, I've tried to revisit it uh, three times since my original paddle. Uh, the first time I was days away from actually uh, starting the paddle, and we had some weather issues first of all, and then uh, we had some uh, setbacks with. Uh, permits for film and uh, you know landing on the islands and things. So we we scrapped the idea just days before I was gonna uh, break into it in 2017, I think. Uh, 2019, I was going to revisit again. I uh, had had some injury and things that happened, and uh, thought about doing it again in 2020. But of course, uh, a global pandemic happened, and that really shut everything down. So uh, it's one of those things that uh, I will eventually find a way to make it happen. I'd, I'd read a story about the woman that uh, that swam from Cuba to Florida, or the, the Florida Keys, and you know, the woman was in her 60s. It was just, what, like, like five years ago or so. And in the interview after she had done the swim, she says she's actually attempted it uh, a handful of times. And she said, uh, I think it was her, her, her girlfriend or her, her wife had said to her finally, she says, are you going to do this or not? Because if you aren't, I want you to stop talking about it. And that's kind of how I feel about uh, this Channel Islands trip. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm still talking about it. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still stewing it over in my head. So eventually I'm just going to either shut up about it or, or, or make it happen. I'd like to do it sooner than later, but uh, you know, when, when, when the timing's right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll eventually make it happen. Well, we're about out of time here, but we really want to thank you for coming on here and just sharing your experiences. So many people can relate to depression and you're just a you know a champion for that. I think you give a you're inspiring a lot of people to have confidence and and hope that there's ways to to overcome that or at least deal with it. Yeah. It it's it's all about maintenance, you know. And I if if anyone asked me what what what's the the main takeaways is fine something in your life that makes your life meaning, meaningful and throw yourself into it. 
but similarly, don't, as much as it hurts, don't keep it to yourself. Uh, there are plenty of people that want to help you, that, that, that want to take an active role in your health and your healing. And you'd be surprised the more you open up, the more, the more people will come to your aid and, and, uh, it, it, it's been a really neat eye-opening experience. Thanks so much, Will. That's you're making me think that I got to do something uh, a little more with my life. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. It, it's okay to live vicariously as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Passion to Poison. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well.